Well, good morning. If you would, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where Kurt was reading earlier. As we do so, let me ask you to pause with me and pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together, to be encouraged, and to encourage. We pray that we who gather today would do so for the honor of your name and for the desire to bless your people. May we not be seeking that which we can receive, but Lord, that which we can give. May we take the mercy that has been shown to us and show it to others. May the comfort that you have comforted us with be extended to others in their weariness. And Father, I ask that you assist me to proclaim the glories of your name this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So do you know what it is to feel weary? Do you know what it is to feel worn out on the trail? To feel like you've been walking an awful long time and your legs are getting heavy. Um, and I don't mean weary like the, the kind of fatigue you get when you're out of shape and all of a sudden you decide you'll sprint somewhere. Uh, I made that mistake several years ago. It's when I first realized my age. And one of our young people was running away from me playing uh, ultimate frisbee. And I'm like, I can catch this dude. And I started to gain on him. And I was like, yeah, I got him. And then all of a sudden my legs got real heavy. Like my legs felt like cement. I was like, whoa, I'm going to stall out here for a second, calm down. Not that kind of weary. That's, that's a different kind. Of, that's just like you're out of shape. I mean the weariness that like it's hard to put one foot in front of the other. The weariness where it's you wake in the morning and you're thinking, why am, why am I awake? The weariness that gets into your system that can... It doesn't lead to a shipwreck of faith, but certainly a diminished capacity to run hard after Christ. Uh, I think everyone who's been following the Lord for very long or become familiar with him is in danger of becoming weary on the trail. And I don't mean you've got to be, you know, 75 and having walked with him for 20, 30, 40 years or something like that. I think teenagers who grow up in the church are in an especially dangerous place because they have grown up familiar with the incredible truth of God, and it's not special anymore. I will glory in my Redeemer. You know that feeling? Where it's not really there? And sometimes you don't realize what you've lost, the heights from which you've fallen, until you're around a young believer who's very excited. And if you're not very careful... The thought gets in your brain, well, that's just because they're new. Wait, they'll settle down. That's the wrong takeaway, my friend. That is the wrong takeaway to just allow the cynicism of your own cooled passions take over. One of my favorite things over the years of staying here, you know, being here 20 years now, is to get to see various saints fade off, die, well, who are at the end still running. I don't know how many of you remember Mr. Walters. 
um, but he would say at the end of sermons all the time, he'd go out there and I heard him talk to my dad, he said it to me a few times, you know, just, um, hey, this is an old man at this point. I mean, he's, I forget how old he was when he died, he's in his 80s, but he would say at the end of so many sermons, he'd go, oh, that's me. I needed to hear that. He wasn't thinking of the person sitting next to him or someone else outside of the room. He was internalizing what was being heard, and he, he, so he wasn't weary on the path. He wasn't barely hanging on. He was still walking hard, even though years had diminished that. Now, those of you that are on our prayer list, and we have many with ongoing health needs, we all know that a weariness of body can bring about a weariness of soul. You break the body, and the soul many times follows with it. So I urge you, brothers and sisters, who are dealing with those things, to let your example be seen. And I don't mean showy, but allow the joy that you have in Christ to be known. Other believers need to see that. They need to be encouraged by the example of saints who are playing through the pain. You know, people are enamored with Michael Jordan's flu game. You know, where he was, you know, had the flu and he managed to, to, get, to, to get through it and scored 38 points or whatever it was, and that's pretty neat. But, dude, that's a one-time flare-up. I'm really not that impressed. Okay, cool, you played through the flu. But how about playing through, as a child of God, chronic pain for 20 years and still not letting it wear your soul down and still finding a joy I don't know how many of you are familiar with the ministry of uh, Johnny Erickson Tata, but uh, if you're not, I would encourage you to do so. Just to, if, if nothing else, learn of her story as a teenager, how she broke her neck and became a quadriplegic and has since then used that as an opportunity for ministry over and over again. And there's one saint after another like that that we can look at and see that they're not weary on the path. You don't have to have a diminished capacity and a diminished love for Christ as you get older. That's the wrong takeaway. Instead, as Revelation chapter 1 would show us, or chapter 2, excuse me, and looking at the, the church of Ephesus, you need to realize the height from which you've fallen and repent. Come to God all over again. Come to God through the gospel all over again. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Allow that joy of knowing God through Christ wash over you again. To cleanse out the, the piled up layers of sin. The plaque that is built up. So I say that as you step into Second uh, Corinthians chapter 4 verse 1 because of that phrase in there where he says we do not lose heart. Because if anybody would know what it would be like to get weary on the path, it would be Paul. Of course, we look to Christ in all things. But Paul also sets an example for us, which is something that he says, follow me as I follow Christ. And we've got to consider that that's what we're supposed to be able to say ourselves. That's a, that's a high calling that many times we, we skirt away from. But that's the kind of life we're supposed to live. How am I going to do that? That's a million-dollar question here, eh, more than that, the eternal question here. How am I going to do that? How am I going to walk with Jesus for the rest of my life and not grow weary? Because that doesn't sound possible. 
That doesn't sound like something I can do. How can I be, you know, 85, dealing with chronic pain and all that kind of stuff and still passionately pursuing the Lord? How can I do that? That's what I would like to try to open up for you here today. Uh, We start in chapter 3, actually, excuse me, verse 18. And even here, in trying to set the stage, there's no good place to back up in this text. I know I'm I'm the pinch hitter, I know. I come in. And I, I, I have these uh, random times when I jump in, so I, I try to jump in and just exegetically teach through a passage, but I've always got to give the backstory. And the problem with that is, in this text, if you go to verse 18, what do you see? But we all. So he's continuing a previous thought. You go back to verse 15. He does the same thing. 14. Go back to verse 12 of chapter 3, and what's he say? Therefore. So how far back do I need to go to set the stage for this particular text? I don't know. I do know I need to take a drink, though. So let me back up to verse 18. There's more to it. One of the key things that he get into actually is back in verse 7 when he talks about, but if this ministry of death, and he talks about the ministry repeatedly through verse 8 and 9 as well. And now you come down to verse 18, and he says, But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed formed into the same image from glory to glory, from one level of glory to the next. This is speaking of progressive sanctification, your, your gradual process of becoming more and more like Christ as God promised he would do. He will finish that work in you that he began. Amen? He will not give up on you. He will not allow you to be conformed to this world. As his child, he will continue that work just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So what he's speaking of in reference here is Moses and how he had to veil his face because the people were frightened by the reality of the glory of God. To talk to God face to face as Moses did as no other man made his face shine, glow in such a way that people were freaked out by it. They were scared enough that the response was to say, just cover it up. I can't deal with that reality that that is the nature of the power of God. It's a wonderful thing to consider that God is so glorious and dwells in such unapproachable light that he outshines our sun. And that the eternal state in which we will delight ourselves in will have no need of a sun for he will be the lamp. And some of that reality being shown, manifested in front of the people of Israel on Moses' face was too much to behold, so cover it up. It's kind of like what we understand from John chapter 3. Men love darkness rather than light. I don't really want, I, I say I want to be in the light, but do I really? I claim I want to see all the defects and the sin problems. And I, I claim I want to be totally holy, but do I really? The people of Israel saw a glimmer of the glory of God and said, this is overwhelming. So Moses, recognizing that, covered it. And as you're reading that, back in Exodus, as you're reading that, it doesn't strike you as uh, anything different than he's just putting on a veil. But here, Paul picks up that theme and elaborates on it, and he speaks now of this incredible reality of beholding as in a mirror the glory of God as we're being transformed into the same image from glory to glory. 
Therefore, verse 1 of chapter 4, therefore, since we have this ministry, let me pause on that. What is this ministry that he speaks of? Because he spoke of a ministry earlier, ministry of death. Now he's talking about a ministry of life. This is new covenant gospel ministry. And for me, if you're like me and you're pretty scatterbrained, I often have to put notes in my Bible right next to a word like that so I don't, like, cause otherwise every time I come to this, I go, What's his, what ministry is he talking about? And then I do 10 minutes, 20 minutes of going back so I can't progress. So I do a shortcut for myself and I put above ministry here, I put gospel ministry. Therefore, since we have this gospel ministry, sharing the gospel, as we have received mercy, so since he's imported all this mercy from God, he who has been forgiven much loves much, that principle being explained somewhat in a different way, we do not lose heart. But he continues. Paul loves a run-on sentence, at least in English. And he continues his thought and doesn't really reach its, its culmination token. He was so transparent and outspoken. He didn't back down. Don't you love seeing those people on, on the news? Those rare birds who it doesn't matter what the current narrative is when they're, they're sitting there, the, the interviewer's saying something and they don't back up. You know, they, they don't like retreat. Instead, they have courage and they say what they believe. Paul certainly was not one to shy away from what it is that needed to be said and he did it with a sincerity and a truth that was in many ways very shocking to the people around them. And that's kind of the culture we're in now. Everybody's lying to you now, right? That doesn't seem that way. Everybody's in it for some form of, sort of manipulation. Some sort of, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. And you see these, this whole narrative thing of stuff, and we're not really trying to find truth and all that. So if somebody comes in and actually speaks truth, well, now, now you're the rare bird. Paul experienced much adversity and part of that, I believe, is, is what we ought to experience. All those who desire to live godly lives will exper experience persecution. So, in not losing heart, he says this in verse 2. But we do not, or excuse me, but we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. This is, uh, I don't know, this, for some reason that little section there didn't jive in my brain I didn't quite understand what he's getting at. What he's really talking about, another way to maybe help add some explanation to this, is that he doesn't want a private disgrace or a secret sin to be um, a, a form of stumbling. He doesn't want private disgrace caused by hidden sin to be that which would slow him down. Now, if you're a child of God professing to be following Christ, and you're telling people that, your coworkers or whoever, your neighbors, friends, family, whatever it is, you're, you're professing that, but at the same time, you've got some secret sin? Well, of course you're going to experience some depression because you're a hypocrite and you know it. Of course you're going to experience some pushback in your soul. There's going to be a conflict of interest there. Private sin uh, leads to a disgrace that's hard to even quantify. We've all seen in recent years various celebrity-type preachers who once they've died, things have come out about them. And it discredits so much of, of everything they did, doesn't it? It undermines the message. 
And it makes you second guess basically everything they were saying because you realize there's a certain level of duplicity here which doesn't belong in a child of God. Paul is saying this against the backdrop of accusations that for him don't make much sense. They're actually going to say he's the one who is, as it says here, walking in craftiness and adulterating the word of God. Craftiness is um, kind of a smarmy term, you know. Uh, It's not meant to be flattering. If you're crafty in the biblical sense here, it's, it's not a good thing. This would be like conniving. Uh, Proverbs talks about the winker, the guy who winks at things, you know, and he has a secret plan, a hidden agenda, that kind of stuff. That's part of the accusation that Paul is receiving, uh, that he has a, he's saying one thing in one place and something else some, in another spot. Paul finds that absurd. He says further, not only is he not walking in craftiness, but he, neither is he adulterating the word of God. Adulterating speaks to correct. It's a term used when you corrupt gold or wine with inferior ingredients. Think that through for a minute. How easily do preachers adulterate or mix in inferior ingredients into the Bible, into what the word of God has to say? How quickly do we take the purified word of God and start going, yeah, but we can help it out. We can assist. You know, just the the simple idea that is very popular, don't speak of things like sin, judgment, and hell. You know, that's that's hard stuff. We'll just talk about the love of Christ. My friend, that is adulterating the word of God. That is not a true gospel. That is a, a variant You've introduced new ingredients. You've defiled at that point. Now, let's be fair. The temptation to adulterate the word of God is very strong. The coolest and most popular and biggest ministries, if I can even call them that, in the world are those that have done exactly this. They've injected new ingredients and new methods and all of that. Those are the ones that thrive, it seems. They seem to have the the big stuff going for them. They're the ones that are on the preaching circuit and writing the books and that kind of of stuff. So the temptation is very real. It's very tempting to take the songs of Bethel or Hillsong and start using them. Why don't we do that? Well, because Bethel music, if you're familiar with Bethel music, they're heretics. Their doctrine is false and leads you to something other than Christ. I would encourage you to investigate that further. A couple of years ago, 2020, when we had Tony Wood here, he went through a whole thing on our men's conference, went through a whole thing discussing that movement. Uh, the man who leads Bethel is, believes he's an apostle. It's very tempting to use such things. It's not that Bethel or someone like that is mildly off. It's that they're heretical. So I don't want to platform them. Same thing with Hillsong. If you watch the documentaries on Hillsong, you see a bit of what I'm talking about. But the music is really good, isn't it? I mean, it sounds nice. It has a great flow to it and all that. But uh, even godless people on documentary talking about Hillsong pointed this out. Like their, their music is designed to move you emotionally, to manipulate emotionally. That's not a Christian person saying that. And actually, some of their own mouths, they said that's how we design our music. It's very popular to do that. It's, it's the cool thing. 
And so it's very easy to slide in that kind of direction, to bring in new elements and new ingredients, because that's where so much of the popularity is. And I could imagine Paul would have gathered a much larger audience, and he wouldn't have gotten beat up nearly as often, and he wouldn't have been thrown out of town to town had he just softened the edges, had he just laid low a little bit. But instead, what Paul did was he would go into a town and go straight to the synagogue and speak clearly about Jesus Christ and him alone. That's not how you made friends in a Jewish synagogue in the first century. It's not how you make them today. If you uh, read the Friends of Israel magazine out there, Israel My Glory, and you go to the back page, there's a little guy named Zvi. He died uh, in like 2015. He... uh, survived, I believe it was Auschwitz, and then he served in the 48 war and the 67 war and stuff like that over in Israel, and he, would, he was fearless. He's a little guy. John Henry told me he met him, and uh, they, he's a little guy who was fearless, though. He would go straight into these synagogues and open up Isaiah 53 and start talking to him about it. Bold in his proclamation, and he didn't make many friends doing that, but his goal wasn't friendships. His goal was the glory of God by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, regardless of response. Some places that's going to boom. Some places that's going to be popular. Very rarely does that happen, though, because that's just not the nature of things. And it's very common to want to adulterate the word of God, to, to be crafty in these things, because, man, that, if you can get a big crowd and whatnot, man, that's, that's exciting. It's very exciting. Paul refused that and said he chose the simplicity of gospel presentation. He's not walking in craftiness, doesn't have some sneaky way about him. He's not adulterating, he's not manipulating the word of God for some direction he wants to go, but by manifestation of the truth, he's commending himself, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul has been um, explaining that embracing the call to gospel ministry means acting and behaving in a way that is consistent with that ministry. So if you make the claim to being Christian, there are necessary consequences of that. And it's exaggerated in Paul because he's an apostle and because he is so outspoken, because he is so much out there. So if you're going to make the claim, you need to back it up, which only makes sense. Anyone making a tall claim better be able to back it up or they should rightly be dismissed. So in showing that he's trying to be consistent with that ministry, he's showing back in verse 1 that he doesn't lose heart. That is that he has endurance in the race. And then secondly, being consistent with that ministry, he is disowning any secret sins. There's there's nothing in the closet. There's nothing you're going to find out later. If you deal with addicts at all, uh, alcoholic or drug addict or something like that, you'll find very quickly that they have a backup plan for their backup plan. They will tell you they have no money, but they will have a secret bank account. Or they will say, I gave you all my credit cards. And then they go and they open up, or they've already opened up another credit card that wasn't one of those original ones. 
They find backdoor ways of getting to what they want. There's a backup plan in their mind. They're looking at you saying, yes, this is how, what I'm doing, but there's a backup plan. Paul's saying there's no backup plan. There's no secret sin. There's nothing you're going to find out. And he lives his life so transparently that in chapter 1, I find this baffling, just mind-blowing to me. In chapter 1, Paul defends to the Corinthians who are accusing him of things, not being transparent, he defends his travel plans. He goes through in verse 17, 18, he starts talking about in chapter 1 about his travel plans because they accused him of saying, you're going to do this, but you don't. You say yes, yes, and no, no, but you don't really mean those things. And Paul's saying that is garbage. Paul recognizes that his message is wrapped up in his character. And this is a very hard reality for us to come to terms with as children of God because we recognize our frailty and say, how? This is why we ought to live lives that are out in the open, that, are, that don't have a craftiness or an adulterating way about us, but to be clear as to who we are, not making false claims as to who we are, but instead to, to seek to live the same way Paul did as he says, with a manifestation of the truth, that would be what would commend him. That would be a letter of recommendation as to who he is. Paul's point might be to say this, you've seen my life. I've, I've lived among you. You ought to be able to know if I'm money hungry, which they accuse him of. You ought to know if I'm one of these people that says yes, but I don't mean it. How ought you know that? Because you've lived with me. I lived among you. You saw my life. You saw my method. And this letter, 2 Corinthians, really is a run-on from the first one. It's connected back to that first one where he explains the same things, which is what he gets into now in verse 3 when he says, even if our gospel is veiled, going back to that veil metaphor, it is veiled to those who are perishing, which takes us back. Here's one of my legal flips as an exegetical preacher back to 1 Corinthians. So if we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, First Corinthians chapter 1, it says, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. So those who are perishing look at the cross and they go, what a silly thing this is. You crucify your God? That's how they're viewing it. He says down in verse 23 or 22 that Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. The visual aid that ought to come to your mind here is of a Jew looking up. They're imagining Messiah coming in some grand, glorious way. And as they're looking up, they get tripped up like a step they didn't see, smacking them in the shins. They didn't see Jesus because they're looking up here at some version of what they imagined Messiah to be, concocted ideas of a hero, a prince charming to come along. And so while they're looking up, something cracks them in the shins. And they stumble over it. They fall. And they're like, this, kill this thing. You ever done that? You ever been so mad at an inanimate object you start kicking it? You know, it didn't do, and it's a thing, right? You smack your head on the dresser and you're like, ah, and you smack the dresser like that hurt it. 
That's the kind of thing they do. That Jesus didn't do anything wrong. He didn't sin, and they couldn't accuse him of a sin. They didn't even make those kind of accusations. Instead, they, they trump up a trial, and they bring false witnesses. Isn't that amazing? Look, we need to kill this guy because he's a problem. He's doing miracles and stuff. Who cares about that? Let's kill this guy. And now somebody, tell us what he did wrong. We got nothing. All right, who are the worst guys in town that will lie about him? That doesn't give you pause as you're going to take this guy to murder him. No, because the stumbling block hit them so hard that it humbled them in such a way that they don't even want to think about him. And that veil remains to this day. There is a resistance to even speaking the name of Jesus among Orthodox Jews. I found that fascinating. I talked to a guy over in Israel, and he was saying, he's, uh, he lives over there, and uh, he was saying that um, when, he tell, when people figure out that he's a Christian and whatnot, when he starts proclaiming things, they'll say, oh, you're a follower of that guy, the follower of the name, which I thought was kind of cool. That is that he's so powerful, they don't even want to speak his name. Incredible. And then, not to let the rest of us off the hook from the Jews, it, to Gentiles, it was foolishness, especially in Corinth. You know, they're in the shadow of Athens and all those uh, glorious philosophers of old that they look to and you, you talk about a message that would not, you know, check off all the philosophical boxes of coolness, it's going to be this message of the cross. Why? Because he goes down further in verse 26. He says, consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen what? The foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are Strong. And then he goes deeper. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen the things that are not so that he might nullify the things that are. That's not going to be an attractive message to guys that are seeking for the, their latest and greatest philosophical system to replace Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Epicurus. Nope. That was one of the disparaging comments made about the early church among Romans. They looked at the Christians and they said, look at these people, this rabble. One actually said that they come out of the sewers and the filth. They're the, the slaves. It's a slave's religion, things like that. So it didn't tickle the ears, the message of the cross. And Paul continues speaking to this message. He doesn't, he, this is why he says in Romans, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Why would you be ashamed of it? Well, if you understand what's really being proclaimed, you could understand the desire to feel shame over it. I, I want to shrink back from it. All of us who have boldly tried to share the gospel with somebody in a, in a situation that's a little uncomfortable, you start to feel a little bit of that. You start to feel that cowardice come up in you. And are you going to stand or are you going to shrink? Going back to our text in 2 Corinthians. He said in verse 3 again that if our gospel is veiled, 
It's veiled to those who are perishing. The gospel itself is going to be veiled, hidden from those who refuse to accept it, to even consider it. So Paul doesn't have any type of unclear teaching. As he said back in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read one verse. He says, For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He had a simplicity of presentation so that their faith would not rest upon eloquent presentation, but upon the gospel itself. And it's very tempting for all of us to try to church things up, you might say, to try to make it sound in a way that's more appealing than to tell someone, look, you are a sinner condemned to hell before a holy and glorious God. You have no ability to please him. Your, right, your greatest deed is a filthy rag before him. You cannot plead to him on the basis of your own righteousness. You've got no leg to stand on. So what are you going to do about that? Well, you plead for that. Well, if you're truly wanting that, then there is an answer from God. It's called Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in him. Back in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he says, uh, to those who are, he said, if it is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel for the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. They can't see Christ, not for in his glory. Physically, when he was on earth, they could see him, but that's not what's being spoken of. To look at Jesus, as it says in Isaiah, is to look at like a root out of dry ground. I mean, you don't typically find yourself enamored with the roots out of dry ground, do you? Fall comes and you see glorious trees are beautiful, orange or yellow or whatever it is. You find, oh, look how pretty. I don't see many people going, oh, and check out that root system. I don't see that a whole lot. Maybe you do. Maybe you're that person. Maybe you're going to be that person now that I said that. But to look at him physically was not to be just overwhelmed with, oh, look at him. Instead, what they are blinded to is light, which is the essence of being blind, isn't it? You can't perceive the light. The God of this world, though, has blinded the minds. This goes back to Ephesians 2. It's blinded the minds of the unbelieving. They just, they can't perceive the value of Christ. Why does he matter to you so much? Why do you go to church all the time? I, every time I come to church, I have to go by the Spartan Sports Park in Chatham. And every Sunday, Jeanette's laughing because she knows what I'm talking about. Every Sunday I drive by that. And I see so many people out there that value softball. Okay. Maybe you're a sports guy. Fine. Softball? That's your jam? Sunday morning? Got to get out there. You're 45? Give it a rest. Think about something deeper than smacking a ball. Right? You're not a teenager anymore. Think a little bit deeper. I think this all the time. I drive by there. I'm like, dude, really? Sunday morning, you're like, go to church. I don't, but I want to. I'm not, not like they would listen. But they, don't, they see the value in 
athletic achievements. They see the value in vanity. You, as a child of God, who has been illumined with the truth, where the lights have been turned on, surely you see the value of Christ. And when you are putting other things over that, you start to feel the friction and go, what am I doing with my life? Why am I not basking in the light? Why am I not seeking to dwell in the light as he is in the light? An unbelieving world would look at Christ and go, yeah, I get it. It's tradition or something that that's powerful to you, but really you value him this much? Well, the reason we value him so is because, as I said, those lights have been turned on and you were blind, but brother, now you see. Unfortunately, the God of this world is very real, though he might be much denied in our day and age, ironically enough, as the world is becoming more and more like him. He has blinded them, distracted them, devoured them, so that they might not see the light of the gospel. I've always been amazed at how we love to run other people down. We love to build somebody up, the latest celebrity. We love to prop them up and make them awesome. And then we also delight to tear them apart. Remember how big Tom Cruise was in like the 80s, 90s? How much everybody thought he was like the coolest movie star or whatever? He's a big deal. Now it seems that people like a whole lot more seeing him do something stupid and making fun of him. They like tearing things down. What is that about us? Well, what that is is sin. We prop somebody up in a place they don't belong, idolize them for what we imagine them to be, and then when we realize the real thing, or when we're bored with them, we say, next, and then we have to say why that thing was dumb. As he says here, Jesus, the glory of Christ, is the image of God, the exact representation of the Father. You want to know who God is look to Christ. You want to know what he'd be like walking around, living among us? Look to Christ. Verse 5, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants, your, your willing slaves. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ. He doesn't want people enamored with him. The statues and churches and whatnot that have been built in his honor since then, I can, I'm quite confident Paul would be aghast about. Stop it. As he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, what are we as, a, as the apostles? He says, we are servants, under rowers, slaves. Nobody in that ancient world with a galley slave down in the lower levels. He's actually talking about a third rower. Lower level slaves just doing this job on the trireme, you know, just paddling along. Nobody goes down there, selects one guy, go, man, you're awesome. Let's make a statue out of that under rower. We don't know the name of any of these guys. Why? Because they don't matter. And that's Paul's perspective. I don't matter. Christ does. And his life was a living testimony of that. He gave it away and he didn't lose heart. In the process. How? Going back to my original question, verse 6 For God, who said, Light shall shine out of darkness, 
Now that's hearkening back to Genesis 1.1. It's this creative effort. God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you behold, and I don't mean in some mystical way, but if you see the value, if you behold the value of Jesus Christ rightly and you bow and worship to him, that wasn't from you. Just like it wasn't from Peter to recognize that who Jesus was when Jesus pushed him and said, who do you say that I am? And they sat there dumbfounded. Oh, I don't know. He says, no, who do you say that I am? Peter said, what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, that was revealed to you. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for that was revealed to you, not by flesh and blood, but by the Holy Spirit. God had to do that. My friend, it is God who is at work within you. How do I not lose heart? Because I know the one whom I believed. And I know that he is able. I don't think I'm able. I got to give that nonsense up. But what I do know is that I can focus my attention, my affection, my devotion on him today, Sunday. And I'm not supposed to worry about Monday. That's real. You're not supposed to worry about Tuesday. And how much are you worried about Tuesday? How much are you worried about your retirement plan or, or whatever else it is that's out in front of you? Jesus didn't give you the grace for that day. Gave it to you today. I can focus my affection on him. I can behold Christ today. And how do I do that? Not some touchy-feely thing, not some experiential thing. God can't be experienced outside of the word of God. How do I behold Christ? How do I understand Christ and know anything about him? This word. And I must bask in that and believe. He who would come to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. My friend, and I mean that sincerely, seek him today. Behold him today. Let me pray. Father, help us just today, in this moment, in this hour, to truly delight ourselves in the knowledge of Christ, to know that you are, that you are before us, that you are with us, that you are within us, that we have no right to claim these things unto ourselves, but Lord, we, we glory in your great name. Help us, Lord, to not lose heart by re-centering our affections upon Jesus, our solid rock, our fortress, our delight. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.